0: All Christians have heard the gospel proclaimed to them at one time or another. Whether that's by family members, friends, or even complete strangers. There's no such thing as a Christian who has never heard the gospel. And that's why the primary goal of this class is to equip us to share the gospel with others. That's the goal. Paul says in Romans 10 verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. God has chosen Christians like you and I to be the instruments by which others hear the gospel. And so evangelism demands that we use words. It demands it. Without words, there is no evangelism. And by evangelism, I mean what Max Stiles means in that little book that I just handed out that Katrina Erickson stuck her hand up for. I mean that evangelism is teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. It's teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. Now the word evangelist in the New Testament is just someone who is a herald, someone who proclaims good news. That's what an evangelist is, and that's what we are seeking to do. is to proclaim the good news that sinners like you and I can be reconciled to our holy, righteous, and just God through repentance and faith in Christ. And so we evangelize when we teach the good news, that sinners can be reconciled. And so we evangelize when we teach the gospel. And this means we need to know the content of the gospel, which is what we're going to spend the majority of the rest of our time on this morning, the content of the gospel. This is just a reminder for you, okay? Whether you've been a believer for 30 years, or you just came to faith, or you don't even know Christ right now, this class is for you. I love what Tim Keller uh, has to say about this. We never get beyond the gospel in our Christian life to something more advanced. The gospel is not the first step in a stairway of truths. Rather, it's more like the hub in a wheel of truth. The gospel is not just the ABCs, but the A to Z of Christianity. The gospel is not just the minimum required doctrine necessary to enter the kingdom, but the way that we make all progress in the kingdom. Friends, the gospel applies to all of life for all of our lives. And our goal for this class is to be equipped and ready to share the gospel whenever that conversation comes up with others. We never move on from it. There are many ways that we can learn how to share the gospel. Today, we're just looking at one way. You could share the bridge illustration with somebody. You could walk someone through the gospel of Mark. So today, we're looking at two ways to live, which is really helpful because it presents the gospel very clearly and it helps to ensure that we can present the gospel really clearly. And it helps to give us different avenues to which we can kind of enter into a conversation with the two ways to live track. All right. Helps us to summarize it quickly if need be. So I want to use this framework for us in sharing the gospel. So no matter, no matter where you're at in conversation, you can slide into that conversation by, you, by just pulling from wherever we are, wherever you're at in that two ways to live track. All right. So number one. God, the loving ruler and creator. Before we can talk about sin, we we must know whom we've sinned against. We've got to start with God, and before we talk about salvation in Christ, we need to know where He was sent from. And so we begin with God. All right. And to illustrate this, I'll just draw a crown. Now, if you now if you're in the uh, yeah, you'll have to. There it is. All right, so who is God? If someone were to ask you who God is and what he's like, how would you answer them? What would you tell them? There're two basic cons- uh, descriptions of God that we're going to focus on. Number 1, God is creator, and number 2, God is loving ruler. And the verse that we get on this is Revelation 4, verse or sorry, yeah, Revelation 4 verse 11. The 24 elders are around the throne of God and they take off their crowns and they throw it at the foot of his throne. And then they say this, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Because you created all things and by your will, they existed and were created. So the first thing that we need to realize is that God is the creator of all. God alone is eternal. He has no beginning and no end. Everything in the universe is a created thing. But God alone is self-existent, meaning that he is independent of his creation. He doesn't need a tutor to teach him math. He doesn't need a counselor for conflict resolution. He doesn't need an onyx double shot of espresso to get him through a late night of work or study. He is dependent on nothing. But all things are dependent upon him. We get this in Genesis 1.1, where he creates the heavens and the earth. And then as well, we we'll follow up to that, Colossians 1.16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So God creates all things for his glory. They're created by him and they're created for him. He is the rightful ruler and authority over all things. Which leads us to this is the second part. God is ruler of all. Paul said, or yeah, in Acts 17, 24 through 25, Paul, speaking right here, says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, because he himself gives to all mankind life and breath In everything. So, all humans, all nations, all creation is under God's rule. He is the owner of His creation. But what's our relationship to God then? What's our relationship to God? God has created us in His image, and He has appointed appointed us to rule over the rest of His creation. We see this in Genesis 1 27 through 28, which says that God created man in His own image in the image of God he created him male and female he created them and God blessed them and God said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth so men and women both reflect the image of God he created us and appointed us to rule and to look after his world but our rulership is always subordinate to God's. We didn't make ourselves rulers. God, in his kindness, appointed us as rulers over his world under his loving authority. And so you can see this. This right here. This may be terrible, but we'll go stick figures this morning. There it is. Crown representing God. We are under God's authority, ruling over his creation. That's the first step. Okay, The crown represents God as the ruler, and we are ruling over his creation under his authority, his loving authority. And the good news is that God is not a cruel or a harsh ruler. He doesn't withhold anything for our good. He doesn't withhold anything that's for our good. He's a loving ruler who knows what is best for us at all times. So just a first step summary right here on step one. First step summary. God made the world and made mankind to rule under him. Put that even shorter. God is the creator. Humanity rules under his authority. That's the first step. God is the creator. Humanity rules under his authority. And all that sounds rather glorious. It sounds great. But that's not the way it is now, is it? Which we come to point number two humanity in rebellion. Point number two humanity in rebellion. Can everybody see that? Do I need to kind of push it back, which I can't? Okay. There it is. All right, humanity in rebellion. According to God's word, we believe that God created the world as good. But when we look around at the world today, we see that the world is messed up. We see the pervasiveness of corruption, of greed, of hatred, of death. And what went wrong? What went wrong? What's the problem? Well, in Genesis 3, God had told Adam and Eve not to eat from a specific tree. And Satan comes to them, he twists God's word, and he tempts them to eat of the tree. He promises that if they eat the tree, they will be like God. But both Adam and Eve bought into this lie. And by disobeying God, they were disobeying the ruler and authority. They didn't listen to God about how life works best. Instead, they wanted to run their lives their own way, not God's way. So they committed treason against God, their ruler and their king. And in a negative way, they declared independence of God. It was 4th of of July in a negative way for Adam and Eve. This treason and rebellious attitude is what we call sin. As a result of their sin, the relationship man had with God was severed. No longer were God and man on speaking terms. Man broke his right relationship with God as their king. And as this rebellion had far-reaching effects, all of Adam and Eve's offspring then inherited this sinful nature. As Paul says in Romans 5, verse 12, just as sin came through the wor- came into the world through one man, that one man being Adam, sin came into the world through one man. This means that their children, their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren, all the way down to us, have inherited a sinful nature. This wasn't just a problem for Adam and Eve. This is a problem for us. Their rebellion and broken relationship with God is our rebellion and broken relationship with God. We're all infected by sin and responsible to God for our sin against Him. We're all responsible. Romans 3.23, Paul says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we see this sin in our lives in a number of ways, whether it's anxiety over future finances, or even just family members that you've got or bitterness towards someone who may have said something to you or done you wrong. Or telling, you, telling a white lie, just to try to escape consequences. All of these things point us to trying to be self-sufficient rather than God-sufficient. We seek self-sufficiency. And most people you talk to are going to tell you that the problem is outside of them and that the solution is inside of us. But the Bible shows us that really the problem is inside of us. Follow your heart. Listen to your heart, the world will say. But the problem is inside of us, and the solution is outside of us, in Christ. So the essence of our most fundamental problem is not economic. It's not social, nor is it political. It's us. Man rejected God as ruler over God's creation. So this means you have God over his creation. Man has rejected this. And then sought to, I'll well, we'll put this this way, take the crown upon themselves. Okay. We have sought to usurp the throne of God and to take the crown from him. And in our rebellion against him, we reject him as king and enthroned ourselves as king. So let's summarize. Step one, God is the creator. Humanity rules under his authority. Step two, humanity rebelled against God, wishing to run things its own way. Humanity rebels against God, wishing to run things their own way. So what will God do about this rebellion? Point number three, judgment. Step three, judgment. Our sin has ruined the world that God gave us to rule. And what's even more, our rebellion against God makes us deserving of his righteous judgment. The author of Hebrews says in chapter 9, verse 27, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Paul also says in Second Thessalonians 1, 8 through 9, He takes vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from his glorious strength. And this judgment can be pictured in this way the crown, and then us lying dead underneath it. That's. All right. There it is. That's an arm right there, not a wing or a flap. All right, so as a side note, Scripture is clear, right? In the passages that we just read, and in many other passages, that our opportunity to turn from our rebellion to God is gone when we die. When you die, that opportunity to turn to God is gone. It is gone. There is no second chance. This is why Scripture pleads with unbelievers today that today is the day of salvation. So God's patience will one day come to an end. He will not just let us go on rebelling against him forever. So what are the consequences of sin? Well, right there, death. Death is a consequence of sin. We just read about the fall of man when Adam and Eve disobeyed God by eating of the forbidden fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then God promised beforehand, he promised beforehand that this would result in their death. And then he confirmed that in Genesis Genesis 3.19. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So the curse of death was not limited to Adam and Eve, but it applies to all of us today. Every single one of us, because we are their offspring and because we carry their sinful nature with us. As we just read in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, that death entered through sin, and in this way, death came To all men, because all sinned. So, this death that Paul is speaking about most likely entails both physical and spiritual death. God created life, and in response to our sin, He takes life away, death. Second consequence, judgment. So, physical death is only the first consequence. We then come to judgment, the final consequence of our rebellion. We just read in Hebrews 9, 27, that after death comes judgment. But this raises a question. What is this judgment actually going to look like? Contrary to popular opinion, who believe that God was just a God of wrath in the Old Testament, or a God who judges in the Old Testament, Jesus has this to say in Matthew 13. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore. And sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus talked a lot about judgment. The punishment that he warns us about is eternal. He shows us that the God of the Old Testament is also the God of the New Testament. That he is a just God. That he didn't change all of a sudden when we get to the New Testament. As creator and ruler, God has the right to do as he pleases. He determines right from wrong. However, God is not an evil, oppressive God. He is a good and just and holy God, which means that he is perfect. He is pure, and he is separate from all that isn't. God is a righteous judge who doesn't let the guilty off the hook. He ceased to punish sin. He wouldn't be holy, loving, or just. If he did that, he would not be holy, loving, or just. However, he's also a merciful, a gracious, and a steadfast, loving God who forgives sin. We're going to see how those two things can even be held together in our next point. So to summarize before our next point, Step one, God is the creator. Humanity rules under his authority. Step two, humanity rebelled against God wishing to run things its own way. And then step three, God judges and will judge humanity for this rebellion. But how can he both forgive sin and then yet just let the guilty, yeah, not clear the guilty? How can he forgive sin and not clear the guilty? Leads us to Jesus' death, step four. Step four, Jesus' death. Each of us has rebelled against God and deserves a just and eternal condemnation in hell. And the biblical picture of hell is a place of horrible torment, where the fire never goes out. Perhaps even worse, hell is a place of horrible torment, and yet we can't undo what's already been done. Hell is a place where you cannot go back and seek to figure out and redo what's already been done. In order for us to understand the good news of Christianity, we needed to understand the bad news first. But now we want to turn to God's gift of grace. So God chose to save man from sin through Christ, his son. You could say that all of scripture testifies to this. However, one verse that's helpful to summarize this great truth is there in your handout. This first Peter chapter three, verse 18. Peter says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So God's work of salvation can be pictured like this restoring us to that order that we had in the beginning. Bad J. So because of God's love for us, he didn't leave us to ourselves to suffer the consequences for our sins against him. Instead, he sent his sinless son, Jesus Christ, into the world to live perfectly under his rule, unlike Adam and unlike you and me. Jesus lived perfectly under the Father's rule and reign. So Jesus took our punishment for sin, that is death and judgment, that's the punishment for sin. He took that upon himself by dying in our place as a substitute. He took the full force of God's justice toward us on himself so that forgiveness might be available to us. So let's summarize. First step, God is the Creator. Humanity rules under his authority. Step two, humanity rebelled against God, wishing to run things its own way. And then step three, God judges and will judge humanity for their rebellion. Step four, in his love, God sent Jesus to die as an atoning sacrifice. That's not all. Come to step five. There are six steps, as you can probably see in your handout. Step 5: Jesus resurrection. What good is the gospel if we have a dead if we only have a dead savior? What good is the gospel? His death is certainly important, but the vindication of his message and his mission comes through resurrection. The word resurrection just refers to a dead person being raised to life from the dead. I'm not going to assume that you already knew that, but that's what it means. Just refers to a dead person being raised to life from the dead. According to Scripture, the resurrection is the linchpin of Christianity. You pull out that pin, Christianity falls apart. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 17 through 19, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then all then all then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, We are of all people most to be pitied. We're to be pitied because we spent our time pursuing something that was of no eternal worth or value. These verses underscore how critical it is that we understand to communicate the truth of the resurrection when sharing the gospel. We talk a lot about the death of Christ, but we also need to include the resurrection of Christ. Resurrection is not merely just a pleasant add-on to the gospel. It is fundamental to our faith and to our proclamation. All right, so if Christ is not raised, you are still in your sins. If Christ is not raised, then our preaching and our faith are in vain. If Christ is not raised, then God's just verdict of guilty is not removed from you. If Christ is not raised, we have no hope of forgiveness and reconciliation with God. None. But the good news is that Christ is raised. Praise God. Christ is raised. In step five, we explain that. Though Christ died, God raised him to life on the third day as the ruler of the world. The resurrection proves that Jesus has conquered death, gives new life, and he will return to judge the living and the dead. As Peter says in 1 Peter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And how does that living hope come to us? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So we can demonstrate this truth with this picture. Jesus in the crown reigning over creation. Which leads us to the last step. All right, so just to summarize before we get to the last step. Step number one, God is the creator. Humanity rules under his authority. Step two, humanity rebelled against God, wishing to run things their own way. God judges and will judge. And step three, God judges and will judge humanity for this rebellion. Step four, in his love, God raises Jesus to life as ruler and judge. Step five, in his power, God. Oh, step four is in his love, God sent Jesus to die as an atoning sacrifice. Then step five is in his power, God raises Jesus to life as ruler and judge. All right, so where does this all leave us? With step six, the response. Gotta have a response. Now, you may think that after step five, we're just done talking about how God made us. We've sinned against God, we get judged. Jesus died, and he raised a life for us. That this is all just great news. But the gospel is more than just a transfer of information. What's the point of this good news? The point of this good news is that we want this good news to be applied to those that we're sharing the gospel with, just as it has been applied to our own lives, because we have received it. So why is calling someone to respond important? The truths of the gospel are not for information purposes only. The gospel calls for a response in the hearer. So for instance, you don't take a piano lesson just to learn how to play piano. You take a piano lesson so that you can actually learn how to play piano and then play the piano. In a similar way, we tell the gospel so that others might be saved from their sins and know Jesus as their Lord and Savior and be forgiven of their sins against God. So where does all that leave us? It leaves us with a choice that we have to make. Two ways to live. That's the whole gospel tract that is in the back back there. Two ways to live. So there's only two options according to God's word for how we can live. Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. So we're either accepting or rejecting Jesus. We're either for or against Jesus. We're either Christians or unbelievers. We're either sheep or goats. We are either wheat or chaff. We're either saved or condemned. There are only two ways that we can live. We can either continue living our way, rejecting God's rule and running life our way. Or we can live in God's new way submitting to Christ and relying on his death and resurrection. And so, which of these two ways? So, like, when I come to the end of this, when I come to the end of all of this, I guess we can just go ahead and write this right here. So, two ways to live. I don't even know if you all would be able to see this. Two ways to live. Like, neither have the crown on my head. If you can't see this, I am sorry. Or Right? We can live, oh yeah, need to put the J. Or we can live with Christ as the Lord and the ruler and the one who reigns over our lives. So which of these, two, when I come to the end of this, I'm going to ask that person, which of these two ways represents the way that you live? I'm even asking you that right now. Which of these two ways represents the way that you live right now? Hopefully they give you a response. Which represents the way that you want to live? That's the second question that I would ask. So which way represents the way that you live currently? Which way do you want to live? And if they respond with wanting to continue living the first way, then you ask them why, and if they rightly understand, the consequences of living that way. But if they respond with wanting to live the second way, then we need to tell them that they need to turn from their rebellion. Number one, They need to turn from their rebellion against God by confessing their sins to Him and to pray for God to help them to turn from living for themselves and instead to living for Him. So secondly, from that turning, we need to tell them that they need to trust and submit to Christ as their Lord and their Savior, to trust in Him, to rely upon Him, and to rest in Him, to let Him reign and rule over their lives, as he already does anyway. And so we can demonstrate that by that illustration right there in, in point number six. So let's summarize this. First step, God is the creator. Humanity rules under his authority. Second step, humanity rebelled against God, wishing to run things its own way. Third step, God judges and will judge humanity for this rebellion. Fourth step, in his love, God sent Jesus to die as an atoning sacrifice. Fifth step, in his power, God raises Jesus to life as ruler and judge. And then the sixth step, this presents us with a challenge to repent and believe. So how does this all fit in, then, with our personal testimony? Okay? How does all of this fit in with our personal testimony? Now, by personal testimony, I mean your spiritual autobiography, the story of how you came to be reconciled to God through the gospel. And so as to avoid any misunderstandings, we need to be clear that sharing your testimony in and of itself does not necessarily constitute evangelism. Evangelism is the act of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your testimony testifies to what God has done in your life through the gospel. So we don't want our personal testimony to be a substitute for sharing the gospel, but rather a first step entry point, an opportunity into sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel isn't about us. It's about Jesus. Our personal testimonies are not the gospel but rather a testament to how the gospel has proved itself true in our lives. Okay? Our testimonies can also be a helpful tool for the purposes of evangelism. And that's why we're looking at it right now. Preparing your testimony in order to be able to share the gospel and lead into the gospel conversation. So as you came in, you should have received a helpful little outline uh, for your personal testimony, for writing out a personal testimony Within three minutes, or as those who end up getting baptized, like I like to say, 270 words or three minutes, to which they reply that I'm crazy. So a helpful outline for you giving your testimony within three minutes or 270 words or less. So if you've got that, please pull that out. If not, you can just take notes. I'll walk through it on the back of your handout. A helpful outline for giving your testimony... We've got four parts to this. I'll go quickly because I want us to have time to be able to focus on writing out our testimony ourselves and then to be able to share it with the person next to us. A helpful outline for giving your testimony. Number one, what your life was like before Christ. Number one, what your life was like before before Christ. So in this section, we're not trying to brag or minimize about our sin. We're not trying to brag about or to minimize your sin. Don't want to commit either of those. Talk about how you used to think about God, how you used to think about sin, how you used to think about the world. What were you living for? That's the first section. What were the things that you were living for? Point number two in that outline. Let me know if I need to slow down. Do I need to slow down, or should I keep going? Anybody else like one? All right. So point number two. How you came to repent of your sins and believe in the gospel. That's the second step in giving our testimony. How you came to repent of your sins and believe in the gospel. So in this section right here, we want to talk about what God did during this time in our lives and what he used to turn us from sin to trust in Christ. Circumstances around how we came to faith. So talk about Christ's death in our place, in his resurrection. And then share with the person that you're sharing with how you turned from sin and how you trusted fully in Christ For the forgiveness of your sins. That's this section. Got to talk about repentance and belief. Repentance and faith. Turning and trusting. So often, if I ever have to look at testimonies, people leave out repentance. Please do not leave out repentance. That is big. Repentance and faith in the gospel. Step three. What your life has been like since knowing Christ. So what's your life been like since knowing, coming to faith in Christ? So don't talk about how great you are in this section. Okay? These are not humble brags. Instead, we want to talk about how Christ has transformed your life. The question that you want to try to answer is, how are you maturing in your faith in Christ that wasn't present before your conversion? How are you maturing in in your faith in Christ that wasn't present before your conversion. That's the, that's the third step in your testimony. And then finally, step four, is how the person you're sharing with can experience this same thing. How can they experience this salvation? So you want to call them to consider this Jesus who has changed your life. You want to tell them that he can change their lives as well. A response question could include this, which I received from Haley Meyer, which I thought this was very helpful that she uses. Would you like to make that same decision I made to repent of sin and trust in Christ? You can respond that way with getting into a response in your testimony. Leading into a response. Would you like to make that same decision I made to repent of sin and trust in Christ? The final step. All right. So what I want us to do right now is for us to, on the back of that piece of paper, there should be that outline on the back as well. I want you all to write out your personal testimony. Use this as just a helpful guide in doing so. And then, after you finish here, and I'll call it here in like 15 minutes, we're going to turn and share your testimony with the person next to you. should take anywhere from 5 to 10 minutes for you to share your testimony with the person next to you and for them to share with you. Okay? So use that outline to write out your testimony. And once you've written out your testimony, turn to the person next to you and share with them. And then I will let you know when that time is up, to be able to share with the person um, and for us to conclude. All right, go ahead and do that.